This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The true word of God is forever. It is our authority as Christians. The Bible is the most prominent religious text in America and Western civilization and one of the most prominent in the world. Its place in the world and in the church has put it in such a position that many, including those inside and outside of the church, will often bring certain things about the Bible and its context into question. Those of you who know me know that you know, I'm a sucker for a really, really good conspiracy theory. You put me back here with Elisa, and me and her are going to sit down, and we're going to talk conspiracy for hours. I even have a shirt at home that says, question reality. One theory, though, one thought, idea, that I've heard recently about the Bible from multiple sources came up recently. And, you know, I was going to talk about manuscripts next but, and uh, translations. But then I heard this statement. Did you know there are other books of the Bible that aren't in the Bible? Often when I hear this, it's followed by, they have them in the Vatican. You know, two things about this statement. One, if it's not in the Bible, it's not of the Bible. The books that were collected here in the Bible are collected for a reason, just like the books that were left out of the Bible were left out for a reason. And we're going to be talking about that today. And second of all, we know what the books are called. Uh, they're called Apocrypha. These next couple of lessons, we're going to be covering why the books of the Bible are canon and what is Apocrypha and its use, if any, to us as Christians. Today we're going to be getting Proving Scripture Part 3 with Canon. False doctrine is nothing new. False writings are nothing new. We're actually warned about this quite often, even in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 13, Ezekiel chapter 13, starting in at verse 6, says, they have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, thus says the Lord. But the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Have you not seen a futile vision? And have you not spoken false divination? You say, the Lord says, but I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, Therefore, I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. Because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, and one builds a wall, and they plaster it with untampered mortar. These false prophets didn't just speak. They, they would have written these down just as 
the actual prophets wrote these things down. The writings would have been shared. But not only does God warn of this, he points something out in that they will not stand. He's talking about untempered mortar on these walls, meaning that they're not going to last. They will fall. God's word does not fall. God's word stands. In Isaiah 40, going back to Isaiah 40, uh, backing up to verse 6, and I love this, this passage and it is such beautiful poetry. He says, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. God's word withstands the test of time. If it cannot withstand the test of time, then it is not God's word. When it comes to the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament, uh, we do need to talk about the organization here a little bit. I know we've talked about that in uh, the first lesson, but uh, we're going to talk about it in the order that it was in the Hebrew Bible, which has the same books as our New Testament, just organized differently. These are books that are acknowledged by the Jews and endorsed by teaching of the New Testament. The first book books to be considered canon <clears throat> would have been the Pentateuch. These are the first five books of the Bible. Most books of the Bible, a lot, a lot of books of the Bible, weren't immediately considered canon uh, when they were written. It wasn't instant. It was a little bit later on they were found to be canon. Uh, but with the Pentateuch, with the books that Moses wrote, it was instantaneous. As he was writing them, because he was speaking the word of God, he was writing the word of God as well. You can actually see this in Deuteronomy chapter 31, uh, starting verse 24. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. He placed it there because it was the word of God. So it deserved to be placed in with the Ark of the Covenant. It was so important that these words all be written down. Oral tradition was really not that trustworthy. Now, Moses spoke to them, and that's where they got most of their, their knowledge of what God wanted from them. That's how God spoke to them mostly, but... <clears throat> And they, they shared that among each other. But in the long run, oral tradition was not uh, trustworthy. You can actually see this in 2 Kings. And 2 Kings chapter 21, where they lost the scripture, and all they had was oral tradition at that point, and it didn't stick. We're going to read 2 Kings Chapter 21. <clears throat> Scroll down here. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name 
was Hephzibah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nation whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal. He made a wooden image, as Ahab king of Israel had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, and consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers. Only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that, Moses, that my servant Moses commanded them. But they paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke by his servants, the prophet, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. That will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down, so I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. They shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight, and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon reigned in his place. This is one whole generation completely forsaking the word of God and hiding it away from themselves. They put these, these altars up in the temple. They hid the word of God from themselves. Amon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Heruz and Jotbah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. So he walked in the ways that his father had walked. He served the idols that his father had served and worshipped them. He forsook the Lord God of his fathers and did not walk in the way of the Lord. Then the servants of Amon conspired against him and killed the king in his own house. But the people of the land executed all those who had conspired against King Amon. And the people of the land made his son Josiah king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Amon which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? 
and he was buried in his tomb in the garden of Uzzah. Then Josiah, his son, reigned. By the time Josiah is reigning, we have two whole generations passing. He doesn't know the word of God. He hasn't learned the word of God. He doesn't know what it is. He's heard of him, but he doesn't know what it is. In 2 Kings 22 is where we pick up with Josiah. See, Josiah was eight years old. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaiah of Bozkath, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father, David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Thank you. <clears throat> now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshullam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers had gathered from the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, or the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work, to repair the damages of the house to carpenters and builders and masons, and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into the hand, because they deal faithfully. Then... Hilakah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Some will tell you that it was simply misplaced. I've heard that during, like while I was studying this stuff. Heard multiple times people say it was, it was simply misplaced. They lost it. Well, they lost it behind all the altars that they put up in front of it. Behind all the statues that they made. They didn't just lose it. They hid it. And Hilika gave the book to Shephan, and he read it. <clears throat> so Shephan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shephan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he, that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shephan, Akbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah a servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book, that he has been found that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us. Because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Gosh darn it. <laughs> Get back to where I was. Josiah has seemingly no knowledge of the word before this. Two things of importance to note here when it comes to the word of God. 
It doesn't hide well or stay hidden. Even after two generations of sin and taking it out of their lives, when they found the Word of God, they knew what they had found. And the true Word of God and its canonicity is part of it. The fact that it is the Word of God is part of it. It can be found in its words. It is not chosen by man. The other Old Testament books were added. It was a very gradual process, and the organization was this. We have the Pentateuch, again, the first five. The prophets included in that were Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Minor Prophets. And then we have the Sacred Writings. This includes Psalms, uh, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Lamentations, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Christ actually acknowledges this division, and in doing so, also acknowledges that these groups of books are the Word of God. In Luke 24, verse 44, he says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. So we have the law, we have the prophets, we have the writings, the Psalms. While this ends what is canon in the Old Testament, there are also other, many, many other books that are written between the time of the Old Testament and the New. Some of these books are actually, you know, historically accurate books. In 165 B.C., the scrolls that the books of the Bible were written in were finally collected as one canon, and they were organized in that way. You actually see the historical record of this collection in 2 Maccabees. 2 Maccabees, there's, uh, the Maccabees and a lot of the Apocrypha are also split up like the Bible is, chapter, verse, and the such. And in 2 Maccabees 2.14, he says, In the same way Judas collected all the books that had been lost on account of the war which had come upon us, and they are still in our possession. This would have been the time that they would have collected everything. Uh, this is Judas Maccabeus, was what he was known as. This would have been the first official closing of what is considered to be canon. Judas Maccabeus had noted also that the prophetic gift had ceased at this time. In 1 Maccabees 9.27, he says, And there was great tribulation in Israel, such as was not since the time that no prophet appeared unto them. This author, this writer, is noting that even his own writings are not scripture. They're not prophetic. None of the writers during this time have the prophetic gift. They're not speaking the word of God. They're simply writing. It's interesting to me that some people still use some of these apocrypha such as the Maccabees, even though Judas Maccabeus himself says that it is not the Word of God. The Word of God that they have at this time was already written for them. 
God spoke to them through a written word already. While many Jews will actually still use these books today, uh, most of them just use them for tradition purposes. Uh, even during the time of Jesus, they were primarily used just for tradition purposes, and it was not considered to be Scripture. They still <clears throat> they kept it separate from the Hebrew Bible. During the time of Christ, many would have actually been reading from the first translation of the Old Testament, which was known as the Septuagint. Uh, it was a Greek translation. Though many stuck to the teachings of the Hebrew Bible, it should be noted that uh, parts of the Apocrypha were actually in the Septuagint. It was included in there just because of the fact that it was tradition. It was um, history to them. <clears throat> References across the Bible as a whole, as the holy book, also help to affirm what is canon in the Scripture. Everything that is in the Old Testament is referenced in the New, and vice versa, <clears throat> which then affirms its canonicity as well by showing how well all these separate books flow together as one holy Bible. The picture that I've had displayed this whole time on the screen is a map. It's a map showing how the books in the Bible constantly reference back to one another. The bar graph here on the bottom uh, shows the individual chapters of all the books of the Bible. Each of these lines is an individual chapter in every book. <clears throat> Each color shows the books themselves, starting in Genesis 1 down here, and as it changes color, that's a different book. That's a different book. And the lighter color, it's supposed to be white, really looks more like a light gray, um, is the beginning of the Old Testament. And this white down here is the beginning of the New Testament. And the longest line, whoop, the longest line here would be obviously Psalms 119. Each of these lines represents a reference to another book. The closer the lines get, the darker in color they get. So this one connecting, uh, Genesis connecting to Exodus, the color is going to be a darker color and it's going to be closer down here. The Bible is so interconnected that we have connections from Genesis to the end of Revelations, but not just there. Between each of the individual books, there are connections, there are lines drawing them back and forth. Uh, some of you probably know what the term hyperlink means. Some of you might not. Uh, a hyperlink, if you go to something like Wikipedia, it's, it's a word that's highlighted in blue. And you click on it, and it takes you to a different subject. And you can keep clicking on hyperlinks till everything is interconnected. You can go from Michael Jackson to World War I, you can take, you know, John Smith all the way back to Gilgamesh if you so choose. The Bible was so hyperlinked. It was so interconnected. It, it was essentially the first hyperlinked books. That's how interconnected the Bible is. Because you can read one book, and it's going to take you to another book. And it's going to take you to another book. 
And you can go all over the Bible just by looking at the different references and letting them carry you across. Here are over 63,779 references. It's so crazy to think about. The New Testament canon. Christ points out in John that the New Testament you know, is held to the same exact standard that the Old Testament is held to, and that it is divine inspiration. He actually pre-anticipates this in John 14, starting verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And again in John 16, starting in verse 12, it says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will, let, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. <clears throat> like the Old Testament, the New Testament narrows down what is considered canon by a matter of divine inspiration. Again, you see this in 2 Timothy 3.16, brought up the scripture a lot of times. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for the instruction of right, in righteousness. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It, if, if it is not given by inspiration of God, it is therefore not scripture. Also, this reiterates why books such as the Maccabees are excluded from the Bible. They are not inspiration of God. They are not scripture. The process of canonization of the New Testament can be divided into five stages. The first century, this is when the books were written, but also gradually being copied and dispersed among churches. We have the first half of the second century, when they became more widely known and cherished for their content as well as being cited for their authority. We have the second half of the second century when they held a more recognized place alongside the Old Testament of Scripture as well as began to be translated into other languages. Then we have the third century when they began to be collected into what would be called the New Testament and a sifting process began as they sorted through all the other Christian writings as well to separate them from the scripture. And then the fourth century, when church leaders concluded that an accepted canon of what is the New Testament was reached and accepted by the church as a whole. <clears throat> the authority of books in the New Testament was first established in the writings themselves, 
their authority as God's word was established within them. If you look at 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Paul says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. His word comes by the Lord. If you'll backtrack to 1 Thessalonians 2.13, he says something similar. He says, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. While he is referring to his own writings as well, he's referring to all the other writings of you know, other apostles, talking about uh, other writers like you know, Peter, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, Jesus' brother James. even says something similar in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. They're not Paul's commandments. They're God's commandments. Peter also establishes this when he discusses Paul's writings as well. He says, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Saying the rest of the scriptures implies that Paul's writings would also be considered scripture. I know this is something I've said I think both of the last lessons, but Paul is being attacked so much lately in nowadays society. He wasn't really questioned before. His authority didn't used to be questioned, but as of lately, so many people keep trying to take Paul's writings out of the Bible. Paul's writings are scripture, and the authority is found for them to be scripture in scripture. By the first half of the second century, we actually have one of the earliest manuscripts found, one of the earliest copies of any of these books, which was a copy of John. It was found in Egypt. It's called John Ryland's Papyrus. It was, found, it was uh, dated back to 125 AD. And this shows how the writings of John were so revered. And they were copied as early as 30 to 35 years after his death. Within this time frame as well, there's also evidence that Gospels and the Pauline letters were all being very well known, and this would be the time that they were being circulated as well. Some of the smaller letters of Paul weren't immediately accepted by some. They were accepted by most. Uh, but some people were just unsure of them. Uh, no councils had yet met at this time to determine what was the New Testament. It all just kind of, at this time, it's all happening just naturally. Gradually, people are getting these letters. They didn't have a complete compilation like we have nowadays. They had to rely on these books being shared and being copied and being taken to them. 
<clears throat> During this time, there were three men by the name of Clement, Polycarp, and Ignatius. Great children names, by the way. <laughs> These were all three major leaders in the church during this time, and they would have done a lot of writing. Uh, they did a lot of writing in, about the New Testament in the same way that we often see men in the New Testament writing about the Old Testament, or in the same way that we today will teach lessons on the New Testament. That's the work that these men were doing. <clears throat> and this shows that all the books of the New Testament at this time <clears throat> were the same as the books that we have today. If you look back at their writings and see everything that they've collected. These guys were around at the same time as some of the apostles. They would have been very young. Uh, but there is notes in some of their letters uh, affirming that they would have known some of the apostles and they would have known some of the people that witnessed Christ, in fact. Again, they would have been very young during that time, but they would have known some of those people. <clears throat> and again, they wrote letters to other Christians about the writings of the New Testament. The second half of the second century, the man of note during this time was a man named Arrhenius, and he arose among the church. Uh, he was actually taught by Polycarp, one of the other men, and worked with many other Christians as well who had been around during the time of the apostles, who had been uh, part of the first generation of the church. He's, he quoted from almost all of the New Testament on the basis of its authority and how the words written were endowed on them from God. He says concerning the writings that they were fully informed concerning all things and had a perfect knowledge, having indeed all in equal measure and each one singly the gospel of God. Gospel meaning all of these books it might not be a gospel, but it is the good news of God. During this time, other writings were beginning to be written. They were beginning to appear and pop up out of nowhere, seemingly. Uh, some of them were other quote-unquote gospels. Uh, one of them that's actually a fairly popular New Testament apocrypha would actually be the Gospel of Thomas, some of you may or may not have heard of that one. Of this matter, he says this. The word gave us the gospel in a fourfold shape, but held together by one spirit. It became such a problem, all these other different books popping up, that by 170 AD, a man named Tatian put the four gospels together in something called the Diatessaron. Uh, this guy was actually taught by another very prominent Christian at the time. His name was Justin Martyr. Uh, in a lot of research, if you start looking back into the, uh, the church, the early church, Justin Martyr pops up time and time again. By 170 AD, we have full translations of what is the New Testament being compiled in Old Latin and Syriac. And they're 
being compiled together, has the same books that we have in our New Testament as well. By the third century, the man of note during this time, his name was Oregon? I'm going to say that's pronounced Oregon. <laughs> he was around from 185 to 254 AD. He was a Christian scholar, um, very prominent man in the church. Something I also like about him, and something that he did that helps all those who study scripture, is he wrote commentaries. He was one of the first uh, church brothers to sit down and write commentaries on the scripture. For those of you that teach lessons, you know how important a good commentary can be from time to time. But he did commentaries of all the books of the New Testament. A pupil of his named Dionysius of Alexandria noted during this time one of the major problems that was going on still. That the canon had not yet fully been established in every church. It hadn't been fully determined what was canon, what was not. Revelations was one of the big ones. It was completely established in every church in the West, but for some reason the acceptance of it as God's word was kind of variable in the East. But by the end of the third century, they still haven't set the final canon just yet. Then we go into the fourth century. Church historian by the name of Eusebius, I think I said that right. He was a church leader in Caesarea sometime around uh, 315 AD. He states the view uh, of what is going on when it comes to canon at this exact time in some of these churches. The four gospels are obviously canon. Acts, letters of Paul, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Revelations. Canon without question. Those are God's word. But some people did question James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, and Jude. Not very many churches questioned them, but there were some churches that did question uh, whether or not these books were canon. And part of me, when you read these books, it seems that they just didn't like what they said. When you look at the research and everything about this time period, it just seems they didn't always like what they said, so they didn't want to quite include them, quite accept them. But eventually, it couldn't be helped. There were other writings, though, at this time that we're calling New Testament Apocrypha, such as the Acts of Paul, the, the Didact, and Shepherd of Hermas. And these were finally being viewed as completely heretical and absurd because they were, in fact, very strange, very weird. They made no sense. They didn't fit the narrative that is Scripture, that is the Bible. Later on, though, around 367 AD, the church leaders are having enough of this. And they're saying... You know, we know what Scripture is, and everybody keeps trying to bring in this other stuff, but it is not Scripture. A man by the name of Athanius, see us, in uh, 
367 AD, he wrote a letter. It's called the Easter letter because it had to do, uh, it was written around the time that they thought uh, Christ arose and they were already kind of talking about it. Some people were celebrating it. But he wrote a letter called the Easter letter and it completely outlined the books, the 27 books of the New Testament and what they were and why they were. It wasn't until a little bit later that the Council of Carthage met in 397 AD, and they said the same thing. The books that we have of the New Testament, these 27 books, that is God's word. Their main goal in outlining this, they needed to get rid of the Apocrypha. It was causing too many problems in the church. False prophets did not just come in the form of people. It came in the form of writings just as well. So they came together and they declared that no other works are to be read in church as divine scripture. The nature of scripture, the nature of the Old Testament and of the New Testament, is that it was a production of God, not of man. Man did not make the Bible. God made the Bible. He used man to write it down, but man did not make the Bible. When it comes to determining what is canon, what is not canon, it all comes down to divine inspiration. It is not about selecting books from a number of candidates. It's about receiving it, determining its authenticity, and if it is, in fact, the Word of God. Paying attention to whether or not it fits the narrative of Christ. Does it show Christ? Does it match the narrative of the Bible as a whole? We are not here to establish the canon ourselves. That's not our job. Our job is simply to bear witness to its beauty and to recognize its authority in our lives as the divine word of Christ. I thank you for your time this morning. Um, If any brothers or sisters have been having any issues lately, I know we didn't cover any of the first principles today, but if you're having any issue, no matter what it may be, uh, feel uh, free to come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.